Sometimes schlock is a step on the road to greatness. Today, I'm giving my defense of cheap thrills. This is Scott's Self-Indulgent Movie Podcast. Hello, movie friends. Welcome to Scott's Self Indulgent Movie Podcast. I am Scott, and today I am talking <clears throat> about uh, kind of uh, schlocky movies or cheap movies or bad movies or anything like that, or movies that people just think are poorly made, that kind of stuff. Uh, cheap thrills is the general category I'm going with. And this was inspired by my friend Lauren, who mentioned uh, that she watches a bunch of kind of schlocky old movies from uh, like, the, you know, like the 30s 40s and 50s especially that horror era is kind of full of camp classics in that regard and yeah it kind of got me thinking about the influence that exploitation cinema and b-movies have had on movies in general and especially because one of the best examples of somebody turning b-movie fodder into award-winning greatness is has the big one of the biggest movies of the year out right now martin scorsese's killer the killers of the flower moon is out and yeah so this is going to be kind of a a dive into film history and just kind of trends and things like that so hope you enjoy so modern movie discourse is exhausting partially because every single movie that comes out is seemingly held up as a reflection of where the business is, both artistically and financially, and also because there's an air of snobbiness that's been peeking its ugly head out. That does require an immediate caveat, that I'm not talking about people who aren't media literate or don't know how to interpret art. I'm talking about people who will hold up Killers of the Flower Moon as one of the few real movies that came out in the past year, while scoffing at every Marvel movie or complaining that Barbie wasn't deep enough in its feminist critiques. But here's an idea. What if movies, people just want movies that are fun? Movies that don't have a ton to say, but still offer the audience plenty of amusement, scares, or adrenaline to entertain them for an hour or two. If you've ever wondered why there were so many Sharknado movies or sci-fi original movies made for nothing, that somehow found an audience, that's why. Sometimes people don't care if you do or don't have the budget for a dude fighting sharks with a chainsaw. They just want to see a try. So today I'm going to defend what I'll dub movies designed for cheap thrills, both as entertainment and also as inspiration for great artists to come. So first and foremost, cheap thrills are baked into this business. So I think it's wrong-headed to act like cheap cash-in titles meant to titillate the audience and not much else are a new thing, because that's baked, been baked into movie making from the jump. As an example, one of the earliest and most influential movies of all time, 1902's A Trip to the Moon by George Méliès, is best remembered as one of the most technically impressive feats of filmmaking at the time, as if Méliès was always making high art and this was his crowning achievement, which is not untrue. Whereas I'd argue that as important as the movie is, it's a silly-as-hell sci-fi romp that fits well into the director's history of pushing the medium to capture more fantastical elements, including ghosts, action, and creatures beyond imagination. And that streak has remained in the movie world ever since. For every serious period drama put out by a Hollywood studio during the Depression, see Gone with the Wind... You also had a bunch of westerns, gangster movies, spooky flicks, screwball comedies that were more or less lost to time, save for a handful of favorites that remain in the public consciousness due to preservation and scholarship. For every white heat, there were a dozen other James Cagney crime pictures you've never seen. 
the gritty film noirs of the 30s, 40s, and 50s weren't popular in their era or appreciated by critics, but they went on to inspire the French New Wave movement in the 60s that then circled back to influence Hollywood filmmaking. Alfred Hitchcock, one of the most important filmmakers of all time, wasn't taken seriously because he only did suspense pictures and nothing serious. Same goes for the midnight movie craze of the 70s that introduced audiences to kung fu movies, John Waters, and even mainstream pornography. Or the VHS boom in the 80s that led to a startling array of schlocky horror movies that the genre remains fond of to this day, that provided a contrast to the big-budget dramas and blockbusters that ruled the screen. No matter what era, there has always been a counterbalance to mainstream fixations in the independent and the independent and cheap genres, which is also kind of important because Hollywood goes through phases. If you think that Hollywood only just recently became short-sighted and obsessed with trends, you're clearly new here, because most of the American movie business's worst and least creative eras have always been in large part been because of a crackdown on what was able to get produced. My best example is Hollywood in the 1950s and early 60s. Anyone who knows Hollywood films knows that the 50s are very light in important American films. Not because there weren't great artists working, or even a few that didn't, and there are a few that did squeak through, but because so much emphasis was put into safe projects that wouldn't brush up against the Hayes Code, namely musicals, historical epics, and other heartrending, cheesy films delivered with a straight face. Meanwhile, almost all of the f movies that have stuck around from the era are defined by their edge, like Billy Wilder's acerbic Sunset Boulevard and James Dean's breakout Rebel Without a Cause. But by the late 60s, movie musicals were dying, and feel-good movies for baby boomers weren't hitting right, especially as many of their compatriots were being drafted and shipped off, shipped off to Vietnam. And that door was kicked open by movies like a film I've discussed here before, Bonnie and Clyde, an unapologetically violent crime movie with attractive anti-heroes in the lead, featuring more frank discussion of attraction and sexuality than many audiences had ever seen. Same goes for The Graduate, which took the tawdry look and feel of a sexy seduction movie and made it a stand-in for a generational crisis, complete with a folk rock soundtrack from Simon and Garfunkel. It was almost like those cheap movies of years past inspired a new generation of artists. And then came the movie brats because cheap movies can and do inspire greatness. The movie brats is a term that was given to a collection of young uh, directors who shaped 70s cinema forever, many of whom are still working today. These include Martin Scorsese, George Lucas, Francis Ford Coppola, and Steven Spielberg. So what made these artists so important and influential? Obviously, technical mastery from a young age, along with enthusiasm and love for movie making, always helps, as does an education from film school, as many of these men had. But the real hook? They took cheap genres and made them classics. Jaws wasn't the first animal attack feature, but Spielberg's mastery of tension combined with John Williams' iconic score and punch-up from screenwriter John Milius, who gave Robert Shaw his amazing uh, Indianapolis monologue, gave extra weight to a movie about a killer shark. Spielberg mastered that tension by making a small feature about a man running his from his life from a killer truck, for instance. The Godfather took common gangster picture and took it, turned it into a sweeping epic about family, loyalty, violence, and compromise. Even the book The Godfather is based on is best described as fun, pulpy trash, compared to the movie, which is seen as high art. And Scorsese, dubbed by many as cinema's savior, got his got his start working for Schlock King Roger Corman before turning his gangster picture experience into thrilling combinations of drama, black comedy, and character drama like Goodfellas. 
Their ability to blend cheap thrills with emotional and thematic weight is what made them icons. And this thread of seemingly forgettable movies inspiring greatness down the line doesn't end with them. Rianne Johnson quite famously listed off a host of murder mysteries and thrillers that inspired Knives Out, including a number of, including a by the numbers Ms. Marple adaptation. And arguably the most consistent Marvel and writer and director, James Gunn, made his bones working for exploitation films for Troma and made a gross creature feature of his own before tac- tackling Guardians of the Galaxy. And the Daniels, a the Daniels made a combined love letter to cheesy sci-fi comedy and kung fu, and turned it into a crowd-pleasing Oscar winner with everything everywhere all at once. And their film before that was about a farting corpse. And the mastermind behind Barbie, Greta Gerwig, well, she made her bones by acting in a number of by-the-numbers rom-coms and making indie features about offbeat folks. The list could continue for days. The main point I want to make is that not only are cheap thrills inherent fun by themselves, they're also good for the art form. They provide counter-programming when the mainstream goes stale, often to the point where they force it to evolve. And those that end up driving the big changes are either from the world of B-movies or were raised with an appreciation for them. Cheap thrills are cheap to make, but their impact can last forever. This has been Scott's Self-Indulgent Movie Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to join our Facebook group, Scott's Self-Indulgent Movie World, for the latest reviews, discussions, and more. See you next time, everybody, and stay safe.